Morning, church. I invite you to take out your Bibles as we will be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 955. Again, it's on page 955. So let's stand together as we start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptations to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say... I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word as it was just read. And now, in this moment, as we seek to preach your word, we pray, Lord, that you would guide us and you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified and that your church into Christ's life. All right, well, if you've been worshiping with us long enough, you know that our preferred practice here at HCC is to preach expository sermons. That's where the preacher doesn't approach his sermon prep by asking, what do I want to preach this Sunday? Instead, so instead of just asking, what do I want to preach, and then just looking for a text to support whatever point he wants to make, 
the preacher is committed to expository preaching, meaning to go to the sermon prep asking, what is my text and what is the text's main point? And that's the point that he wants to preach that Sunday. That is what we call expository preaching. Now, uh, another preferred practice that we have here at our church is to preach through whole books of the Bible. You see, if I, com- if I'm, if I commit to preach through a, a, an entire book of the Bible, then I'm bound to touch upon topics and issues that I, I wouldn't have chosen if it was just purely up to me and my interest. So in the end, I think what that results in is a healthier, more comprehensive pulpit ministry because it's Scripture's priority leading the way and, and not just the preacher's, not just what the preacher is interested in and thinks is a priority. Now, friends, I, I'm reminding you of all of these preferred pulpit practices here at HCC because for two weeks in a row, you're going to hear a message about sex. And it's not because that's a hobby horse here at our church, but because we're committed to preaching the text, and our text, 1 Corinthians 7, talks about marriage and sex. And some of you are thinking, great. And others are thinking, great. Because some of you are excited because you, you grew up in a home or in a church where no one talked to you about sex where it was a taboo subject, where the implicit message is you, that you received is that sex is, is dirty. I figured it sounded different. <laughs> so you couldn't hear me. All right. Uh, well, I hope you heard that we're going to be talking about sex today. Uh, and like what I was saying is that some of you are probably excited about that because you grew up in a home or a church where no one talked about it, where they treated it as a very taboo subject, that is just, uh, so you got the impression that it's just this dirty thing, it's this shameful thing that we don't talk about. And so what happens is that the two most influential um, sources in your childhood development, your parents and your church, were silent on sex. No one ever helped you develop a Christian view of it. And so now you welcome the subject. You're glad we're going to preach on it. But some of you Um, I'm sure you grew up in a different environment. You grew up with parents or churches who talked to you about sex a lot. And the message you got was sex is dangerous. You know, you'll get a disease. You'll get pregnant. You'll get someone pregnant. So don't do it. And and now you're going to hear yet another sermon on the subject. So I I imagine you're bracing yourself for what you're going to hear. Well, for those of you who are wary of what what we're going to say this morning, I hope to encourage you. I hope to surprise you. Because today, we're going to emphasize the goodness of sex and the part that it plays within a healthy marriage. It's true that that sex can be dangerous, that that it can be, be dirty and shameful, but those are just distortions of a gracious gift that God has given to us, a gift that is good when properly enjoyed. And so in today's text, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is responding to distorted views of sex, which which happened to be the two most dominant views in his day. So he has two viewpoints that he's challenging. So on one hand, 
you have a worldview shaped by Plato and his philosophy that says the body is bad, the soul was good. Now, since sex is of the body, then that means it's inherently bad. It's something to be avoided at all costs. This is where you get the idea of a platonic relationship, a relationship without any romance or sex, a platonic relationship. That, that, this is where we get the platonic view of sex. Now, on the other hand, though, there is the pagan view. In Greco-Roman culture, pagan religions would often treat sex as God. Sex is something you worship. I mean, they literally had gods and goddesses of sex. And they had what was known as temple prostitution, which was very common in that culture. And that's where worshipers would go to these temples and they would sleep with temple prostitutes as a means of worship to that god or that goddess. Paul actually mentions that very practice in last week's text in chapter 6. So far from making nothing of sex like the Platonists, the pagans made it everything. It was God to them. So these were the two dominant views of sex in Paul's day. And really, it's no surprise that they're still quite common today. People today tend to fall under one of two categories. We're either prudes or we're pagans. We either degrade sex and call it gross, or we deify it and call it God. We either try to avoid it or we let it rule our lives. So my goal this morning is to present instead a Christian understanding of sex that neither degrades it nor deifies it, but rather designates it as a gift from God to be given within the context of a healthy marriage. I've got three simple points today. Look inside your bolts and you'll see the outline. Our three points go like this. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is a gift. Those are our three simple points. Let's get into it. First, sex is not gross. This text is going to confront the prude. Chapter 7 is going to challenge the the prudish, platonic view of sex. Look with me again at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Apparently, a letter was written by the Corinthians where they had raised some issues to which now Paul is beginning to respond to starting in chapter 7. And you'll see him throughout the rest of this letter responding to various points that they brought up in their letter. Now, don't get the impression here, though, that they're just seeking advice from a mentor. In light of all that we know about their deteriorating relationship, the Corinthians weren't asking for Paul's opinion. They were asserting their own. They weren't asking, can we, but more like, why can't we? See, last week we we saw Paul challenge uh, some of their thinking, some some of their, he, he quotes some of their theological slogans that they were using to justify particular behavior. And similarly, he's doing that here in verse 1. Paul mentions another theological slogan of theirs. It says, like, it goes like this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The 
ESV puts it in quotation marks, indicating that this is not Paul's statement. This is the Corinthians, and this is their thinking. This is their statement. And the rest of our text is his critique on that statement, his critique on their particular outlook on sex and marriage. So let's consider this statement, this slogan. That phrase, it is good, was being used in the sense of it being desirable, it being advantageous. And so in other words, they're suggesting it is to your advantage, it's to your spiritual advantage to not have sexual relations with anyone, not even your spouse. Remember that many of the Corinthians, as we saw in previous chapters, they really consider themselves to be spiritual people. They saw themselves as very spiritual, and they were superior in their own eyes over against all of the other worldly Christians, whether in their congregation or out there. Those Christians who are not as spiritual, who are still of the flesh, who still take part in fleshly and worldly things, things like sex. So to them, those fleshly desires and those fleshly activities that belong to this present world, this present world is just passing away. And so are all these things. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say that one day we won't be given into marriage, that instead we're going to be like the angels in heaven? So if that's that's the future, if the future starts now, then why participate in any of these worldly things any longer? That was the thinking. And that kind of thinking was so pervasive in the Corinthian church that even married Christians were abstaining from sexual relations, assuming that it would make them more spiritual. Some were even contemplating separation, even divorce, in order to, to make it easier to avoid their marriage bed, which explains why Paul has to pick up that subject, the subject of divorce, in verses 10 to 16. Look in sections 10 to 16, and notice how here he addresses wives first, which is not his normal practice, which suggests to us that it was the wives in the Corinthian church who were likely the ones initiating, this, uh, initiating divorce. Uh, they were the ones that were, were being driven by this, this thinking. So look at verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, there's two terms there, to separate and to divorce. And really, I think they're being used synonymously. Uh, they both refer simply to the dissolution of a marriage. And perhaps the reason why Paul uses separate uh, in context of the wife is because in that culture, the way that she would divorce her husband is by leaving and separating herself from the husband's household. She would separate herself because it was never the husband who left the home. He, if he were to initiate, he would be sending away the wife. And that is literally what the word divorce means in the Greek, to send away. And so that's likely why there's two terms there, but it's referring to the same thing. It's ending the marriage. Now, that parenthetical statement, not I but the Lord, is Paul's way of indicating that this command that he's giving, it didn't originate from him, but from the Lord Jesus himself, from all of his teachings that had been passed down. So, for example, like in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus taught against divorce and for the permanence of marriage. So, in line with Jesus, Paul 
is saying that he does not permit divorce, particularly for those who are seeking divorce as a means to avoid their marriage bed. Now, in verses 12 to 13, Paul shifts attention away from a Christian marriage, and he focuses now onto a mixed-faith marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. You have to remember that the Corinthians were converted not too long ago, so it's no surprise if some of these Christians were still married to unbelievers. But of course, that creates a new set of tensions for them. Based on Paul's reply later in verse 14 about the unbelieving spouse being made holy by the believing one, based on that context, it's likely that some in the church that were married to an unbeliever were worried that their one flesh union with an unbelieving spouse was somehow defiling them, making them unclean, less spiritual. And so Paul has to write in verses 12 to 13, saying this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, uh, when you read him say, I, I, I say, not the Lord, it doesn't mean that Paul's just merely giving his opinion on this particular matter. No, he's still giving an apostolic command, but he's just saying this is not based on a particular saying of Jesus. That he's not aware of Jesus ever addressing this particular con- uh, situation uh, regarding divorce in a mixed faith marriage. That's all he means there. He, but he's still giving a command. Paul's point here, of course, in, in summary, is just that as long as it's up to you, stay married. Don't be the one who initiates divorce. Now, he's realistic enough to know that sometimes it's going to be the unbelieving spouse who wants out. And so that's why he writes in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian in this marriage, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, friends, there's so much more, of course, we could, that we could say about the topic of divorce and remarriage. But I hope you see that this text is actually not primarily about those things. It's primarily about one's view of sex and how that relates to the topic of marriage and divorce. Well, as we said, for some in the Corinthian church, their platonic view of sex that saw it as gross led them to contemplate separation and divorce. And that's why Paul wants to challenge that platonic view because he can see where it leads. He can see the damage it can create in marriage. And so in verse 2, he tells them, That each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, have there is is a euphemism for sex. Paul's insisting that this popular slogan of yours, while it may apply in certain contexts, and you just look in verse 7 in the context of the unmarried, single people, he's like, oh yeah, that, that applies there. But it certainly does not apply to married couples. In fact, if you think abstaining from sex with your spouse is going to draw you closer to God, you're mistaken. Paul says it could actually lead you into temptation and drive you further from God. Look at verse 2. Paul's reason for why spouses should have each other is because of the temptation to sexual immorality. 
Now, you know, I'm sure he could have provided more reasons for why a married couple should frequent their marriage bed. I mean, he could have, of course, mentioned the importance of procreation, having children. He could have mentioned the enjoyment of mutual pleasure. I mean, there's whole books of the Bible that are uh, emphasizing that, like the Song of Solomon. I mean, these are things that he could have pointed to. But here, he focuses primarily on protection. He's referring to spiritual protection from the temptation to sexual immorality. Apparently, this was the one most pressing for them. Remember last week how we saw in chapter 6 that Paul had to say how outrageous it is for Christians to still be engaging in temple prostitution. If we're correct in our assumption that it was primarily the wives in Corinth, who were largely the ones embracing this platonic view, then could it be, could it be that some of their husbands being deprived of their marriage bed were reverting back to their old sinful lifestyle of frequenting temple prostitutes to fulfill their sexual desires? Now, it's no excuse at all for that behavior, and Paul made it very clear in last week's text that that is sin that needs to stop. You need to repent of that. But still, it's no excuse, but it is a possible explanation for what's going on in our text. Paul's point is that husbands and wives should pursue sexual intimacy, not just to please each other, but to protect each other. By neglecting your marriage bed, you could be making each other more susceptible to Satan's attacks. Rather than bringing a married couple closer to God, Prolonged abstinence makes them more vulnerable to temptation. So Paul advises couples not to abstain from sexual relations. But if they ever do, and he does give, he does give a caveat here, if they ever do, it should be a mutual decision and it should be temporary. Listen to verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When a couple experiences frustration in their marriage bed, rarely is it ever due to just one cause. Usually there are layers of causes. But perhaps one reason why there's frustration and why sex is too infrequent in your marriage is because you have far too low a view of it. Maybe because of your upbringing. Maybe because of of painful past experiences, you consider sex to be dirty or to be shameful. And you've carried that mindset into your marriage bed. Well, if that's what you're experiencing, I, I hope and I pray that what you see in this text is liberating and freeing for you. Because Paul's point is that sex is not gross. It is good, and it is good for marriage. So sex is not gross, but friends, sex is also not God. Christians should not degrade sex like a prude, but neither should we deify it like a pagan. And that's what we tend to do. We, we tend to go from one extreme to the other. So some of you, may, you may, maybe you had a prudish upbringing. You were raised with a platonic view, 
And at some point in life, maybe in adolescence, maybe in college or when you were a young adult, you, you reacted to that upbringing. Maybe you overreacted. And so you turned sex into a god, into an idol. Sex became everything. Functioned like a god to you. It shaped and controlled your decisions. It gave meaning and significance to your relationships. I mean, do you see what I mean by, by deifying sex? And the culture around us only encourages you to do this. It keeps sending a message that sex is, is nothing to be ashamed about. Sex is, is like hunger or any, any other good natural appetite. I mean, if you feel hungry, what do you do? You eat. So if you feel sexy, you, you have sex. That's just what you do. That's what humans do. And just as you wouldn't eat one dish for the rest of your life, we're told that it isn't natural to only have sex with one partner for the rest of your life. Our culture says that having lots of sex with lots of partners, that's natural. Sex is nothing to be ashamed about. Now, if all they meant by that is that sex is not gross and that it's for procreation or for pleasure or for spiritual protection, well, then, yes, we'd agree. But that's not what is meant by that statement. What they actually mean when they say that, that sex is nothing to be ashamed about is that we, no one should be ashamed at the extent to which our sexual appetite has grown. But you could argue that our desires have far outgrown our needs. So C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis is the one who, who, who acknowledged that sex like hunger, is a natural desire. He went on to argue, though, that, for example, if our appetite for food ever grew equal to our culture's appetite for sex, then we would all be considered crazy. And he goes on to give this example of, imagine traveling to a country where in that culture, people actually pay money to watch someone eat a mutton chop or where people ogle at magazine pictures of raw slabs of meat. And if you ever saw people doing that, you would conclude that these people are crazy. These people have an excessive and unhealthy appetite for food. But isn't that what we do with sex? It's no longer just a thing we desire. It has come to dominate our desires. Again, sex is not evil. It's not bad, but it can be evil. It can be bad if our appetite for sex is inordinate, if it is disproportionate to our need. So here, in verse 7, Paul is challenging this pagan view that has made far too much of sex. You see, the pagan says, the pagan says, I need sex. I, I can't live without it. If I never have it, I'll, I'll feel unfulfilled. I, I'll, feel, I'll feel less than human. To that, Paul responds, I wish all, that all were as I myself am. Verse 7, he says, he wishes that other people 
would also experience the gift of celibacy. You know, he didn't just mean he wishes that other people were single because there are lots of single people who still want to, to, to get married and have sex. He's talking particularly about this gift of celibacy because if you have the gift of celibacy like Paul, what it means is that you are free from a controlling desire for sex or marriage. I think celibate people wouldn't say that they have zero desire. It's just that it doesn't control them to the point that they, they cannot exercise self-control to be able to say no to that desire and to live in singleness without sex. Well, so while some, though, in the Corinthian church were trying, though, to impose that celibacy on everyone, to impose that kind of lifestyle even on married couples, Paul, on the other hand, he saw his celibacy really as a gift. I mean, let's just look at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So he calls his celibacy a, a gift from God. So that, that means is that if it's a gift, then you can't require or expect celibacy for all Christians. You can't assume that all Christians have this gift. But the fact that God does give this gift to some, this gift of not needing sex or marriage, then that just goes to prove that sex is not everything. You don't need it to be fulfilled. You don't need sex to be fully human. In fact, the most human human being who ever walked the face of this earth, he never had sex and he never got married. We call Jesus the last Adam. And by that, we mean that he is the last man. He is the final man. He is man par excellence. Man as he was intended to be. Jesus was the most human human ever, and he never had sex. So for those of you who, who are unmarried, be aware that our culture will not stop in trying to convince you that you need sex. That abstaining from it is just unnatural, that it's unhealthy. The world is going to say that not having sex is as bad for your health as starving yourself of food. But Christianity will say, hey, don't despise sex. God designed it for marriage, and he designed it for good. But Christianity also says, don't deify sex. Don't idolize it. Don't, it doesn't make you a more fulfilled human being. It should not shape your identity. It shouldn't drive your decisions and your outlook in life. Notice how Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 to encourage unmarried Christians to see the value in remaining single. And he's going to come back to this topic later uh, in the later half of chapter 7. So we're, we're going to be preaching on Christian singleness in a couple of weeks. But just look at verse 8. It says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But again, he's quick to counter that, that there's nothing inherently wrong with desiring sex. And that's, that's what you would expect from someone who is called to marry. 
If God wants you to marry, well, then it's probably, you probably do have a desire for it. So look at verse 9. But even if they, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So church, I, I hope you see the main point here. A Christian is neither a prude nor a pagan. We don't degrade sex, but neither do we deify it. Rather, we designate it as a good gift from God to be given and to be enjoyed between husband and wife. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is a gift. In the garden, in Genesis 2, God institutes marriage, and he gives sex as a gift to the first husband and wife. And that's all a part of God's good created order, all of this happening before the fall, before Genesis 3. And so if you look in Genesis 2.24, it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words... Marriage is a joining of two people in such a profound way that they are virtually becoming a new, distinct person. Two become one. And I would argue that that miracle of two becoming one doesn't happen in the marriage bed on the wedding night. That's not when the miracle happens. I would argue that two become one when in that holy moment, in the ceremony, when a couple makes covenantal vows to each other before God and witnesses, in that holy moment, God takes two and he unites them into one flesh, where they are now spiritually one, emotionally one, socially one, economically one, legally one. They are one flesh. And sex consummates marriage because it's the one act that most clearly communicates this one flesh spiritual union. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. So you see, after that initial consummation, whenever you enjoy your marriage bed, what you're doing is that you are renewing and nurturing that one flesh union that God created on your wedding day. So this means sex is not just a way to physically express your love for someone. This means that sex is the way a married couple affirms their oneness. They renew their covenantal commitments to each other. Every time you enjoy your marriage bed, it's like you're holding a private marriage renewal ceremony between the two of you before God as your witness. In that intimate act, you are communicating to each other, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You stand before each other naked and unashamed. And not just physically bare, but I mean emotionally and spiritually bare. That means your spouse sees you for exactly who you are, sees you with all of your imperfections, and yet still chooses to love you and to accept you. That's the beauty of sex and marriage. That's what it intends to communicate. God is the one 
who makes two into one and gives sex as that good gift that they can give to each other. We call it a gift, but if you look at Paul's language, he even goes further than that. He, he, he uses stronger language than even that. I mean, just listen again to verses 3 to 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So according to Paul, the gift of sex that a husband gives to his wife is actually her right. It's her conjugal right. So in giving sex, you're giving your spouse what they're due. Now friends, I know a verse like that really offends people. The prude can't reconcile how Scripture can speak of sex as a husband or wife's right. They're offended by that kind of language. And so is the pagan. The pagan doesn't like this either. To the pagan, the term conjugal rights, that's such an outdated, antiquated way of speaking about sex. I mean, sex is not a right. It's not a, it's not a duty you have to perform. That sounds so demeaning. But it's important. It's important for us to read this kind of, of rights language that you find here in light of verse 5, where apparently some in the church were depriving their spouse of sex. So, granted, you know, talk of, of duty and rights is not the only way that you can talk, and, talk about sex and define sex. But in this case, apparently it was needed. But it's not so much of an, of an emphasis on, you owe me this, but rather, I owe you. You're not demanding sex from your spouse. What Paul's emphasizing is that you are recognizing your responsibility and privilege to give it. And in verse 4, the point is not that you have authority over your spouse's body to do whatever you please. Rather, the emphasis is on the fact that in the marriage bed, I don't have unilateral authority over my body to do whatever I please. So I shouldn't neglect my marriage bed because it pleases me to abstain. And at the same time, I, I shouldn't make demands in the marriage bed because it pleases me to want it. The stress here, I hope you see, is on the mutuality in, of sex in marriage. And the fact that Paul actually begins by stressing the wife's conjugal rights, I mean, that is amazing if you think about it. Because in Greco-Roman culture, it was strictly patriarchal. Husbands and fathers ruled their homes. Wives in that culture didn't have any rights. Sex was the husband's privilege. It was the wife's duty. But not so in the Christian home. Not so for the Christian marriage. In the Christian home and in the Christian marriage, in the Christian marriage bed, there is complete mutuality. There is reciprocal love and reciprocal duty. Both husband and wife are considering the other's needs and, the others, and putting the other's rights above their own. Both are trying to outdo one another in showing honor. Marriage in, marriage in the Christian home is a back and forth dance of love between husband and wife where they're constantly laying down their own rights laying down their privileges, and daily seeking to outdo each other, not in what they can get, 
but in what they can give. Husband and wife are both trying to reflect the self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ for his bride, which, of course, marriage was always meant to signify. Jesus, if you think about it, he showed his love for us, not by making demands, not by claiming rights, but instead by laying down his own life for us on the cross. If that's what Jesus did for us, if that's what marriage is meant to communicate, then how can we treat our marriage beds with anything less than the biblical mindset that it is far more blessed to give than to receive? If that's the attitude, if that's the mindset that a husband and wife are bringing into their marriage bed, then he never has to worry about her being inconsiderate towards his sexual needs, sexual desires. And she never has to worry about him making insensitive sexual demands. Because both of them are operating out of a gift mindset, not selfishly seeking to get, but lovingly seeking to give. I mean, do you see how that kind of attitude, that kind of mindset could just transform marriages? I mean, sadly, sex is such a common source of marital strife. And so just imagine our gospel witness. Imagine the impact it could make on our unbelieving friends and colleagues if we had healthy marriages and healthy marriage beds characterized by selflessness, by sensitivity, rather than by stress and strife. I'm just looking back with me in verse 7. There in verse 7, when, when Paul describes his celibacy as a gift, he spoke in terms of each having their own gift from God. So in context here, he's implying that marriage and sex in marriage is actually a gift. And, and, and singleness and celibacy, that's another gift. One of one kind, one of another. But both are charisma. That's, that's the Greek word he's using. In Greek, that literally means a gift of grace. I mean, it, it really it has that word charis in it. That's the Greek word for grace. I'm sure you know a lot of, a lot of you know, girls uh, named charis in, in Christian, Christian churches because that's a, that's a common name from here. It means grace, and this is found here. And later on in chapter 12, Paul uses that very same word, charisma, to describe what we commonly call a spiritual gift. My point is that marriage and sex within marriage is a gift that we receive by grace from the Spirit of God. It is a spiritual gift in a sense. And likewise, it is a gift that we can give to our spouse with that exact same gracious mindset seeking to please the other, seeking to serve their good and not ours. I just love how this passage, it challenges us. It challenges both the prude and the pagan and, and, and their particular views of sex. Sex is not gross. It is good. It is right to be shared and enjoyed in marriage. But sex is not God either. It is not everything in marriage. Sex is just one thing. It's just one gift. 
that you can give to your spouse to reaffirm and deepen your one flesh union, but it's not everything. Let's not forget what marriage is really about. Marriage is about so much more than just this one thing. Marriage is ultimately about the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and the way that it challenges and convicts us, the way that it liberates us as well. And so whatever, whatever message that you need to send to us particularly, whatever application we need to, to, to live out in our lives and, and for those of us who are married in our marriages, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us, humble us, and may we walk in faithfulness to you to bring you glory and to bring good and joy into our lives and into our marriages. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.